0: The striking thing to me is that most people have a healthy bit of skepticism about the efficacy of any subcommittees of House committees, and this isn't even a subcommittee yet. But i got to say, if this most recent hearing is any evidence, you know, it has some promise in terms of something that actually debates real-life issues that actually matter to human beings without quite as much shouting and YouTube kind of foolishness that you otherwise run into.
1: Making sure government doesn't screw things up.
2: My name is Julie Verhage Greenberg, and I'm the co-founder of FinTech Today,
1: and I'm John Pitts, Global Head of Policy at Plaid,
2: and this is the policy podcast where we dive into all things FinTech policy,
1: or as much as we can cover in 20 minutes.
2: In today's episode, we have a special guest, and I'm going to let John introduce this one because it is, uh, you have some interesting stories together.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do, but I think we just pre-agreed never to tell any of those stories, especially not on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it is my great pleasure to uh, introduce and welcome to the podcast Raj Datte. Uh, Raj uh, is the principal at FS Vector, Fenway Summer, and probably a number of other organizations that I don't even know about. Uh, He is also the former deputy director uh, and first deputy director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So uh, I think it'll be great to hear from him because he's got a perspective both as a regulator, investor, and policy consultant, which I think may cover the entire landscape of D.C. in the form of a single person how's it going raj
0: it's going well though it sounds exhausting the way that you position what i'm up to these days i'm also not sure that being a a single person embodiment of all that is dc is even remotely a good thing uh especially in these times but i'll take it uh anyway it's great it's great to great to spend some time with both of you thank you for the invitation
1: there is a House FinTech Task Force, yes, believe it or not. It, and it's been around for a while, but I think with, with mixed results in terms of how much impact they've had on, on policy so far. Uh, that task force has been around since the Trump presidency, and it was reformed uh, again after the Dems took control of the House. So we're, we're now on the second iteration of this task force.
0: The striking thing to me is that uh, most people have a healthy bit of skepticism about the efficacy of... Um, any subcommittees of House committees. And and this this isn't even a subcommittee. Yet. It hasn't quite risen to that level of, of uh, augustness, but rather as a task force. But I got to say, if this most recent hearing, which was whenever that was, I think on the 21st, uh, is any evidence, you know, it has some promise uh, in terms of something that actually debates real life issues that actually matter to human beings without quite as much shouting and YouTube, you know, kind of foolishness that uh, you otherwise run into
1: whenever you have Representative Waters and Representative Luca Meyer aggressively agreeing with each other in public, you know something uh, interesting and unique is happening. And and that happened at that task force hearing. And to me, I think there were two really interesting things that came out of that hearing. Uh, One, there was bipartisan agreement that CFPB should move forward with the data access rule. And Raj, you know that bipartisan agreement on anything related to the CFPB, including whether it should exist at all or should be launched into space, is a relatively infrequent occurrence. Um, And the second was that Chairwoman Waters actually stayed at that committee hearing for quite a bit of time and uh, really dug in on some privacy issues, including suggesting that maybe Graham Leach-Bliley, which the majority of the financial services industry has relied on as sort of their main privacy law for quite some time needs to be reconsidered and reopened. And, and to me, CFPB moving forward and privacy being really up in the air for a fundamental renegotiation, not just generally, but in financial services, struck me as two pretty significant areas of alignment coming out of the hearing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would agree with that. And By the way, when I first came down to D.C. and testified for the first time, I was astonished to see that, you know, the hearing rooms are mostly empty uh, (laughs) during the course of the hearing as people come in and deliver their uh, five minutes of theatrics and then quickly exit stage left or right, uh, depending. Um, But look, I I think I think that the the debate that has begun and that presumably will continue about the nature and efficacy of um, of uh, opt in. Uh, requirements with respect to, for example, the what ultimately will become the 1033 rule, uh, section 1033 uh, expectations around uh, data sharing and data privacy and open banking and the like. I, I think it's good to be starting from first principles and kind of re-questioning things like, well, gosh, when I scroll through, you know, a page and a half of fine print before I say I agree, like, what exactly am I agreeing to, and is what I'm agreeing to somehow in line with a normative sense of what might be fair or expected by, you know, normal, average people. And if we're not asking that now at the outset of the 1033 process, then I don't know when else we would. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily is going to translate into any legislative text that is agreed to by anybody anytime soon, but at least it creates, I think, a good substantive debate for, among others, bureau policymakers to to be able to consider. Um, because I do think this is this is a very important and quite long overdue rulemaking. I know that I have uh, as much to blame as uh, for, for that delay as anyone.
1: Uh, so it, it's really interesting you frame it that way because, um, you know, one of the things that I, I hear fairly regularly and I'm sure you hear as well is uh, traditional FIs saying, um, well, you know, we are held to certain standards on privacy and consent. And not everyone is held to those standards, and that's that's not fair, right? And I think uh, one of the open questions is sort of, do we need to have a level playing field? My answer would be yes. But it almost seems like that level playing field is not just, let's apply, you know, bank rules to non-banks, but it's, let's reconsider the rules for everyone and, and see what that gets us. Is that your read of it also? And And if so, like, Do you think that's going to come as a little bit of a surprise to some of the banks that have been pushing this let's level the playing field for everyone as as one of their main policy priorities?
0: I think it might be. It's always a little bit difficult to calibrate what what, um, flavor of let's level the playing field kind of complaint people are are making. Uh, I I think many people have made this observation before, but I remember Barney Frank making it during the the deliberations ahead of Dodd-Frank, which is that he hears from everyone – Everyone in the industry that they are uh, unfairly the victims of an unlevel playing field, how can it be that everyone simultaneously is the victim (laughs) of of that playing field, Um, uh, which I thought was an accurate observation. And so, look, there's sometimes some of this uh, complaint about an uneven playing field is is merely reflexive. Uh, And sometimes it relates to a genuine difference in rules that are applied. So for example, with respect to the prudential considerations about the solvency of a bank, we care more about banks going out of business than we do say finance companies or fintechs, because the public fisc one way or the other is sort of on the hook for like 90% of the liabilities of a bank where that just isn't true for the vast majority of fintech firms. Uh, And so the the rules in those cases are different, should be different, uh, arguably. Uh, but then there's a there's a third way, which I think might actually be the most important day to day, which is that even in cases where the exact same rules apply to everybody, and by and large that is true in the realm of say privacy, and it is true in the in the realm of most things that the CFPB is responsible for. Um, uh, even in those cases, the difference is that banks have on the ground examiners who, depending on the overall circumstances, may or may not be forgiving of relatively small footfalls, Uh, whereas that just isn't true in the case of firms that don't have on-the-ground examiners. And I can attest that the impact on internal uh, decision-making is affected. Uh, It tends to further put sand in the gears of management teams and creates an already sluggish industry, it creates a, uh, an already sluggish industry to, to move in a direction of increasing sclerosis um, and so I don't think that those I don't think that all of those complaints are are purely reflexive self you, you think
1: there's a legitimate case for make everyone move, move as slowly as we have to so that uh, consumer innovation uh, proceeds at the pace of government
0: <laughs> I think yeah I, it, it is it is definitely true by the way that um, both regulatory agencies, and their regulated charges left unchecked will cycle into the slowest possible um, uh, sequencing of action and reaction possible. So, yeah, that is that is quite a danger in the way that you put it. Um, but I think people are going to try to wrestle through uh, the the real sort of policy issues at work. Um, so, for example, uh, this this observation that, well, gosh, look, if we had started with a clean slate and would, would we have intentionally designed a system on which all we rely on is screen scraping? No, that no, we wouldn't. On the other hand, does it really make sense to do a bunch of plumbing and API work before we're even sure that like the idea of more open availability of consumer data at their, at their behest, like is even worth something, that something can be done with the data for consumer benefit? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. And so, and so I think this is a, I think this is a good time to revisit some of these questions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything we've done to date is somehow wrong. Um, you know, path dependency matters. Uh, you've also got questions about, well, gosh, if we move to a world in which everything is kind of dedicated, you know, API pipes for, for consumer data, there is a long tail of financial institutions um, in this country. And I can assure you that banks, you know, 101 through 7,000 or whatever the number is, uh, are going to be a lot slower to be able to adopt that kind of uh, approach to consumer data than, say, the top 100 uh, financial institutions. Uh, and you know, there are people who care greater or less about you know the the viability of those smaller consumer franchises. But for the people who care a lot about them, this is going to be an issue.
1: And that's actually sort of a great transition to the other big news uh, this week, which is Rohit Chopra has been confirmed as the director of the CFPB, and I guess. The big question is, and I definitely have an opinion on this, does it matter, right? Uh, There are people in D.C. who are all about personnel is policy, and there are people in D.C. who are all about, no, the law is policy. Where do you fall? Do you think it actually matters to have Rohit as the decision maker for a 1033 rule? And if so, how is that going to make a difference?
0: Yeah, I think it's gigantically important for 1033 for policymaking broadly, how it is that uh, consumer finance conduct is is regulated at the federal level, its interaction with state uh, policymakers, as well as the institution, the CFPB itself. Um, I mean, just starting with the last one, as you will recall, John, it's hard to build stuff. It's really, really hard to put. It was hard to put the CFPB CFPB together. It was hard to get it across the starting line. It was hard to prosecute its functions over the course of the first 12, 18 months. Um, And it's really easy to destroy stuff uh, because most things just left to the state of nature and apathy will eventually asymptotically reach peak disarray and, and basically zero impact. And I don't envy particularly uh, the the challenge of rebuilding the institution to the level of impact and salience that it, it should have sustained over the period of years, um, and yeah, I think that just as a as a as a as an important policymaker, Rohit is going to have a different uh, point of view and a different level of um, of overall uh, impact on the terrain than his immediate predecessors were. I mean, if if I think about it, like. He has, he's going to be able to pull on uh, strengths at, that that uh, neither directors Kraninger nor Mulvaney had. Right, so he comes in kind of knowing the industry. He's spent a fair amount of time around the financial services industry and has certainly, in the entire time that I've known him, had a more or less inexhaustible intellectual curiosity about how things work and why. And that goes a long way when you have a broad uh, uh, jurisdictional purview as the CFPB does. Um, he is going to be respected by fellow regulators. He's going to take up a lot more space at, for example, the FSOC and the FDIC board than I suspect his predecessors did, not necessarily through any fault of their own, but you, you know he is, he's a known commodity. He's known for having a point of view and also knows, knows the industry, so that's going to help. And then finally, I think he is respected by and known by most of the senior staff already. Um, yeah, you know, The Bureau is whatever it is as of today, 1,200, 1,300 people, and if you, if you go in with 90% of those people being skeptical about your dedication to the mission of the enterprise, well, you're going to have problems getting things done, and uh, he's not going to be handicapped in that way.
1: I completely agree. I think one of the really interesting things is – He did have that experience as an FTC commissioner, which will make him the first person at the CFPB to have competition uh, authority experience. And I think particularly with the increased emphasis on antitrust, uh, exploring some of what the CFPB's competition authority may be feels like it is likely going to be on Rohit's docket uh, as sort of a new policy development that I think we will see. Um, And you know to go back to sort of the folks listening this to this and raj i think he put it really well he has an inexhaustible intellectual curiosity to learn more about new stuff and my recommendation to anyone is if you've got that choice of sort of hide for the regulator from as long as you, or hide from the regulator for as long as you can or go to a regulator who is going to be genuinely curious and interested in your business model, if you think it's legit and you think it's good and creates a benefit, um, I would view Rohit as someone who you want to go talk to, not wait to have come talk to you.
2: I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this. Well, I guess I'm allowed to ask this. I don't know if you guys are allowed to respond to it, but you mentioned that Rohit is one you want to go actively out and talk to. Who are some regulators that you might not want to go out and actively talk to? They're not as intellectually curious as what he might be. The smile on your guys <laughs> is. I probably can't
1: answer that question with that framing put on it, Julie. But
2: Raj, maybe. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm. I'm pretty I sure that try. no judge would allow that kind of question,
0: even under cross. Um, uh, but I hear. I, I I put it in this way, like um, when Rohit started at the bureau. He was in a role – everyone knows him from the, from the role as the student loan ombudsman, which is a statutorily defined role. But in addition to that, we asked him to lead in the early days our markets function with respect to student lending. And that is, you know, essentially a pivot person around policy, uh, around which policymaking revolves, who can interface with the industry, with our internal rulemaking teams, with the research economists. Like I, the way I put it to our markets heads back in the day is that you should be the single person who anyone in the market and anyone inside the building had ought to be able to go to for a point of view on what's going on in the market, why and what might be going wrong. Um, so. That's kind of the approach I suspect that he'll have across the uh, full breadth of his jurisdiction going forward, and I suspect it means that those markets roles, uh, John, that you'll be very familiar with, uh, will be quite a bit more important and hopefully quite a bit more accessible than they've necessarily been over the past several years. Um, and so, you know, I, w- I would expect that you know forward-leaning financial institutions, firms, including ones in our own portfolio, I hope, will be engaging with those markets teams moving forward.
2: But one other thing I want to make sure that we get to, too, with only about like five minutes left is stable coins and central bank digital currencies and whatnot. Um, it feels like, you know, we went into the, the year thinking that, you know, the Robinhood stuff, brokerage accounts was going to be the key thing. But it feels like, I mean, I hadn't even heard of CBDCs as they're called until like six or seven months ago. And now all of a sudden, everyone's really paying attention to them a lot. Uh, what, what are you hearing over there? Well,
0: I, I, first of all, I should probably make clear, um, you know, our firm across investment vehicles has principal stakes and call it 60 different fintech firms. Uh, but an important one is that we are early investors in and I serve on the board of Circle. Uh, Circle is the principal issuer uh, for USDC, which is, I think as of right now, the single fastest growing uh, stablecoin coin uh, that's dollar backed. Uh, so it's it's not as though somehow I don't have I, I, my guess is I have personally multiple horses in this race, but certainly have that one. Um, uh, that said, I, you know I think uh, I think that the there's some very substantial debate over the necessity for an actual you know Fed-sponsored stablecoin as it re- as as in contrast to private sector stablecoins, um, and indeed there are those who would say like what is the point of a stablecoin? Like anyway, don't we have digital money today? Like, what is the what's the, the benefit? And I would imagine that the that the uh, that the the, the the white paper that's issued is going to do more than just have a passing kind of glance towards um here's on the one hand on the other hand kind of stuff on those policy uh, questions. Um, uh, so, for example, I think. Uh, the Bank Policy Institute, an organization that I do not necessarily see eye to eye on on every single issue, I think has raised some pretty you know important questions with respect to what having retail or consumer liabilities at the Federal Reserve would mean for the private sector commercial credit granting function that the, the that commercial banks in the u s are supposed to do in other words, like the whole point of having commercial banks is that you take Um, You know uh, uh, liabilities that are backstopped by the government uh, through the form of FDIC insurance, and then they are able to channel those through the commercial credit corridor back into the real economy. Well, if you create a means by which the Fed is going to instead take those retail liabilities, how exactly is that money going to get in? Unless the Fed suddenly is able to, with a magic wand, get a set of capabilities around issuing primary commercial credit that they absolutely do not have today. And they don't even want today. Like I, I don't, you know, I would find, find me, find me someone at the, at the board or at any of the reserve banks who craves the idea of making company versus company decisions on credit granting. But that, that, that seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, and then you've got, you know, uh, questions that I, I suspect we're all going to have to grapple with, which is like, what if stable coins work? Like, what if it actually does become a very important part of the uh, way in which commerce happens? Well, then, you know, that seems like it, that seems important. And what if it's actually systemically important? What if there's some kind of problem? What are we going to do about it? And near as I can tell, we have three choices. We can either do kind of what we're doing today, which is that the issuers of stable coins are money transmitter, have money transmitter licenses. And if they get really big and systemically important, then we will uh, entrust the FSOC to be able to designate them as such. And then the Fed has, you know, some prudential responsibility over them. Um, Door number two would be, we treat them in the way that we treat money market funds, which have been bailed out, what, twice in the last 12 years. So I guess that A shows you that You know bailouts can happen, and and the world doesn't the world doesn't melt down. On the other hand, B, if you had a choice, why would you keep doing that? So that seems curious. And then door number three would be well, sounds like this is a lot like the banking function. Maybe we should regulate this entire enterprise like banks and have like prudential safeguards about their capital um reserves about the way in which they manage asset liability matching etc i mean my my personal bias would be towards door number three seems to me we already have a regulatory framework that that works i don't particularly crave being on another bank holding company board of directors but to me that seems like the, like the the most the most rational path forward and i'll be very curious to see you know in what direction uh, that that white paper leans
1: so, Julie, now now you know uh, why I was so excited to have Raj on here is because we spent our first podcast saying there's three buckets of fintechs. Bucket one, I never want regulation. I'm doing regulatory arbitrage. Bucket two, <laughs> I'm holding it off as long as possible. I know it's coming, but I'm going to wait until it comes to me. And bucket three is... Uh, Regulation is coming, and therefore I'm going to say what the right regulation should be and lean right into it. And it sounds like Raj has just confirmed his own three bucket analysis and, and said that he sits, sits in bucket three as well.
0: That's uh, I think I think that's right. It, there's never a fourth thing. Like, like I, like the other hundred thousand McKinsey alumni, will attest that there's there's never a fourth thing. There's, there's just only three. Just the three. rule of three for yes, everything. That's
1: right. <laughs> and if there's only two, oh no, Julie, we only have one more episode of this podcast that we can do. <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's it. We we'll, we'll like figure out a way to make it separate seasons, or rename it, or something <laughs> like that, to make sure we can do more. But Raj, if anyone else uh, you know is listening to this podcast and wants to connect with you or find out more about FS Vector, how should they do that?
0: Well, for better or worse, I am very easy to find. Uh, so so reach out. Reach out to me uh, at uh, Vector Fenway Summer. Uh, last I checked we still we still have websites that are up and I uh, I look forward to engaging with uh, with folks in your audience and with you guys moving forward I really appreciate the invitation
2: awesome we're glad that you could make it and John remind me what your Twitter handle is if anyone wants to connect with you there
1: I am at policy pits and uh, tweeting uh, you know in an inflationary way where each tweet is less valuable than the one before it so uh, you know a, a true fiat tweeter here
2: And I am, of course, at Julie Verhaege, and you can find out more about policy and fintech and everything that's going on in fintech at our website, fintechtoday.co. Otherwise, I will catch you guys next time. Thank you, guys.